We are going to start, though, talking about the federal election. In past campaigns, questions around why an election was needed in the first place have largely been extinguished within a few days. But this time around, with the global pandemic still affecting people, jobs and the economy, those questions have dogged the Liberals throughout this campaign. Conservatives and New Democrats have used every opportunity to remind Canadians that the election should not have been called in the first place, and especially not during a pandemic. That is Canadian Press reporter Terry Pedwell. Let's bring in Max Cameron, professor in the Department of Political Science at UBC. So great to have you back on the show. Yes, hi, Jill. What are your thoughts? As So here we are on voting day for anybody who didn't vote in the advance polls or in some other way and is going to be participating in democracy today. What are your thoughts after what you've seen during this campaign? Well, I think that last clip was really interesting because uh, it reminded me of the last provincial election we had where the issue of calling an election in the middle of a pandemic uh, you know, was an issue at the beginning. It was a concern of many people, but it quickly got eclipsed by other, other themes and uh, people moved on. Uh, and it didn't become an issue that uh, dogged the, uh, the, the, the incumbent uh, throughout the campaign. And, and that's what we've seen here. So the, the inability to sort of put behind us that question of why we're having an election I think has been a real uh, sore spot. The other thing is, of course, we're seeing uh, kind of, um, you know, rancor and, and um, incivility in our politics, which is, is certainly concerning, whether it's gravel thrown at uh, Justin Trudeau or um, whether it's the sort of anti-vaxxer type uh, protests that we're, we're seeing along different campaign stops and so forth. So I think that's a, a little bit uh, worrisome. I think we're all just kind of tired with this pandemic and and it's uh, showing that uh, in the ways in which our patience is fraying. It is interesting when you look at that. What do you think the difference is? Is it because we were still earlier on in the pandemic and I think people maybe didn't anticipate it would go on this long, that there wasn't that level of anger on a provincial level, whereas here we are now in the fourth wave, $600 million to hold this election, which people are really looking at as Justin Trudeau trying to take advantage, thinking he could get a majority. Yeah, you know, and I think timing has been an issue because, as you recall, the um, election provincially uh, uh, kind of a- a- the, around the end of that campaign, we began to see the beginning of the third wave. Uh, but it was o- o- virtually no sooner had uh, Justin Trudeau called the federal election that the fourth wave was announced. And, of course, we've seen throughout the campaign rising concern about that, particularly in some of the provinces like, a, like Alberta. So there's the question of timing. There's also the whole, you know, catastrophe that we've seen uh, unfolding in Afghanistan. And these are things that sort of tell voters, oh, shouldn't our government be focused on that rather than uh, running running campaigns? And so I think that the, the timing hasn't worked uh, particularly well for uh, for Justin Trudeau in this, uh, in, in this case. He's also been asked, at least in the beginning, was asked repeatedly for one concrete example of how Parliament wasn't working and why this campaign was needed, why this election was needed, and never gave an answer for that. Do you think, what, what do you take away for where we sit now at, at the conclusion of the campaigning part of this? What is the vote about, do you think? Yeah, it, that's exactly the question. And, and, and to the degree that there isn't an answer, it becomes, well, it's really about the Prime Minister wanting to have a majority um, and, and seeing whether, uh, you know, a successful rollout of the vaccine program would reward him with such a, with such a majority. Uh, and, and that does not appear to have played out or panned out in the way uh, in which he'd hoped. And I really think that, um, you know, we, we, we have a parliamentary system of government in which government is formed in the parliament. Uh, we ought to honor that system. There was no reason to call an election 
because Parliament was working well. There was no vote of non-confidence. There was no need to dissolve the Parliament. And so it did look like a kind of a, a partisan power grab. And, and I think this, there's a lesson here for us as we go into this election, because it very well could be the case that we wind up with a very similar composition of Parliament, or one that's different but not different enough to give us a, a majority, in which case we're going to need to see the parties work together. And I think it's unfortunate that the, the toxicity in our politics has meant that our parties just have not developed a culture of collaboration. Um, uh, that's, and I say that recognizing that our parliament has actually been working well under this current minority situation. But it, it seems as if um, we, we, we can't sort of say, well, 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 that's good, let's build on this. Instead, when we get minorities working well, as we also had in the case of BC, uh, our leaders seize the opportunity to try to create a, a majority. And that's the fatal flaw in, in, in some sense in, in the way in which our system works. And it's why we actually get a lot of minority parliaments and they tend not to last the full cycle of a normal parliamentary uh, um, term, which would be, you know, four years or something of that, of that sort. Which I would think too, if, if, do you think people are offended by that in, in that we've had so many conversations about changing the system, about proportional representation, it's been voted down, but is it not the next best thing if, if you don't have proportional representation and that's something you would like to see? If you have a minority government situation that's actually working well, isn't that the next best thing? It is. And I mean, the irony here, of course, is that uh, if you had a proportional uh, system, then you wouldn't be angling for those false majority governments, which is exactly what Trudeau is looking for. There's no way that anybody in the Liberal Party thinks that they're going to win 50% of the popular vote. They're going to win much less than that. But the hope is that they can win with a plurality of the vote, a majority of seats, and then govern without the hindrance and annoyance of having to deal with uh, opposition parties and their agendas. That's what drives us into these kinds of elections. The reality is if we had a proportional representation system, then you would rarely get those artificial majorities. And consequently, parties would have to settle down to the business of making parliament work. And that's what we see in European parliamentary democracies on a routine basis. And, and it actually leads to a different culture of much greater willingness to collaborate. And, and, and with that willingness over time, comes the ability to collaborate. Parties and voters just get habituated to the idea that you vote for uh, your local candidate uh, or, your or your proportional rep candidate, uh, and then Parliament settles down to the business of forming a government. Sometimes that takes a little bit of time, uh, as we saw again in, in B.C. It took a, a month or so to come up with a supply and confidence arrangement between the B.C. NDP and the Greens in, the, in our previous Parliament. Uh, that's not a crisis. That's normal politics. There's nothing undemocratic about it. It's, uh, in fact, it's, a, it's one way of ensuring that all voters' voices get heard around the cabinet table. And I think that we really need to kind of reflect on some of the arguments that have been made in defense of our current system, the suggestion that it gives us stability and it gives us majority governments. Well, actually, mostly it gives us minority parliaments that, uh, that, that, that then don't live out the full life of, of the of four years because our prime ministers uh, hanker after that majority. Do you think, would it be as simple as just changing it so the actual fixed election dates, other than if it was a vote of confidence or, or a vote that fell, that if we actually stuck to fixed election dates and made it so you couldn't just decide to call one, would that make a difference? Uh, it, it might. My own view is that the idea of a fixed election date is a kind of a presidentialization of our system. You know, the part of, part of the parliamentary system is you don't have fixed election dates. The prime minister, among his 
powers or her powers is to dissolve the the legislature and, and call elections. Now, we, we've, we've created this fixed election date as a kind of a way of signaling that we think snap elections, such as we're currently in, are, are undesirable, and we should try to la- you know, have Parliament last out the full four years. Um, but but I'm, I'm not sure that legislating it is, is actually the solution. I'm not sure that's actually the, the best way of, of, of getting at, at this. Um, I think the, the, the better way of, of, of getting there would be, in fact, by changing the electoral system in, in, in such a way as to actually foster this more collaborative approach that we see in, rep, in PR systems. Are you concerned at all at the possibility that when we when the dust has settled and we figure out what things are looking like after today's vote, that potentially we could have a less stable government than we had going into this? Yeah, I think there are a couple of possibilities. One is that we have um, a, a less stable, uh, where we get an outcome that's sufficiently um, close uh, in a number of, of ways that uh, figuring out how exactly we're going to make Parliament work becomes a, a headache, and and uh, and we could, if it's uh, if the result's not decisive enough, uh, nobody seems to be able to form quickly um, a, a, um, a government based on the, you know the the confidence of the of, of the House. Um, uh, we could wind up back in the polls in fairly short order. It could also be um, the case, however, that uh, it's in the interest of. A number of parties to actually see the legislature work. I mean, for one thing, voters don't want to go back to the polls quickly. That's a very, and so any party that promotes that will likely be punished. Um, it's also possible that if there are questions around leadership, um, that could lead parties to want to have a time horizon uh, and be more likely to uh, negotiate with other parties to try to get a degree of stability so the new a new leader can be found if it were the, the question around the leadership of, of Mr. Trudeau, for example. You'd want a new prime minister and have that person uh, get habituated to the job and voters habituated to the person. Um, and that could mean an interest in at least, you know, a, a year or so um, of, of stability. Um, so, so, you know, I think that's... Um, that, that's, there, there are a number of possible scenarios, and it's really going to depend a lot on, on what the numbers are, right? Who, who really holds the balance of power? How well does the bloc do? I think it would be really worth watching the results in Quebec. Um, does the NDP make significant gains if the Liberals lose votes? How, ma- how many and how close is their uh, seat share to the Conservatives? All of these things are going to matter in terms of shaping the kind of negotiations we're likely to see and consequently the likelihood that the legislature will be able to function for a period of time. All right, Max, thank you so much. Always great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's check in with Richard Zussman, Global News journalist. He is covering the election today. Hey, Richard. Hey, Jill. It's election day. Go vote. <laughs> we have Ben Dooley, who produces this program this morning, we said, did we say we were going to talk to Richard today? Does he have time to talk to us today? Or did we finish those those segments last week? But we were very <laughs> glad that you had time to do this today because you're I right. I could probably even squeeze in tomorrow, too, if you want. We'll <laughs> oh, see what happens yeah, tonight. There might be one or two things to talk about <laughs> t- tomorrow, for sure. Uh, let's talk a bit about today. So I voted at uh, right when the polls opened this morning at 7, and it was easy peasy. There was no one in front of me. Um, I know that people are being warned that there could be some lineups. It might take a little bit longer, but what exactly are you looking at today? Yeah, so voter turnout is important. It's weird because, you know, social media is only one thing, but if you look at social media, there are massive lines in Ontario to vote, and in British Columbia, there are smaller lines. A few different factors at play. A lot of British Columbians ordered that mail-in ballot. I think 
here in BC, people are comfortable with it because we used it during the provincial election, whereas in other jurisdictions in the country, they're not as comfortable. So that's one thing to watch is we may be late in getting back a bunch of results out of BC because these mail-in votes won't be counted for a few days. They need to check if someone voted twice. So they have to check all those mail-in ballots against the voter logs uh, from today. So it's going to take some time. There's also a lot of advanced voting in BC. British Columbians have a better tradition with advanced voting than other jurisdictions as well. So voter turnout's going to be important to watch today. Um, and then also, you know, there's those key ridings. As we start watching the returns come in, you'll be able to notice trends really early on, Jill, around sort of suburban Metro Vancouver. You know, is the NDP building on its vote? especially Burnaby North Seymour, Port Moody, Port Coquitlam, these ridings, if you see them surge ahead early, yes, the polls that are being counted matter, but those trend lines are going to be more important. The other trend line is the PPC trend line. Is this real? You'll be able to tell pretty soon again, it's going to be really specific based on which polls are being counted in a certain riding, you know, more rural likely to have more PPC voters than urban in some of these ridings that cover both urban and rural. But the PPC trend lines early on in the night will be important to watch as well. When we look at where everybody was yesterday, the final day, the big push at the end of the campaign, what does that tell us, do you think? It it should tell us a lot. Put Aaron O'Toole to the side. He didn't come out to BC. Part of that is his heavy focus on Ontario. If you look at the polls, they are down to the Liberals. That is ultimately where this election will be decided in Ontario, in and around Toronto, and then out to areas areas like Kitchener, London, uh, as well as Windsor. So take Aaron O'Toole out. He needed to fight for those Ontario seats. He stayed there. He's looking pretty good in BC. But Justin Trudeau took his campaign team all the way across the country to do an 11 o'clock rally last night in Burnaby. That's desperation to me. You know, yes, he wanted to get that BC media push to show he cares about British Columbia and Metro Vancouver, but to go to Burnaby North Seymour, where they have won the last two elections, shows they are on defense. They're trying to hold on to that seat and help Terry Beach, the incumbent there. So that's where Justin Trudeau was and then immediately got on a plane and went back to Montreal uh, for election night. Jagmeet Singh's visit to BC is fascinating, Jill. He did six stops in the province all ridings the NDP believe they can pick up. So that included in Cranbrook, in Kootenay, Columbia. Wayne Stetsky's running there. He won in 2015, lost in 2019. Then he came to Metro Vancouver. They're looking at Vancouver Granville. They're looking at Pitt Meadows Maple Ridge, Port Moody Coquitlam, Burnaby North Centre, as I mentioned. You know, this is, and Surrey Centre. This is the big push from the NDP. They're polling well here. John Horgan's popularity is helping them. They're taking from the Liberals. We'll see if it turns to seats. It was, I thought, yeah, fascinating, just the amount of movement and where people were yesterday and and, and that final push. Let's talk a bit, before we talk majority, minority, a bit more about that. Annamie Paul coming to BC. Do you think that's going to make a difference? Yeah, and I was just going to note, I forgot to mention her, because she was here on Saturday. And you and I talked a lot about this during the campaign that it was becoming a distraction that she had not come to British Columbia. You know, the Greens and British Columbia are synonymous. This is where the movement started. This is where the party has gained traction. And the fact that Paul did not come out here at all, 
uh, was a signal that maybe her, their two incumbents didn't want her here. Elizabeth May tried to make that clear on the weekend that, oh, it was a scheduling issue and, oh, it's a long way to come and, oh, we've wanted her to come, but there's a pandemic. But still, you know, it shows the fact that, you know, Paul may want to continue fighting on post this election and she needs the support of party brass in D.C. in order to do that. And so her visit here may be a boost. Again, got local media attention, brings hyper-focus on the riding of the Nanaimo Ladysmith, where Paul Manley, as described by one political scientist I spoke to, is in the fight of his life. Um, but, you know, I wonder. That's really the only one up for grabs. The Greens are way down here. They're not running candidates in a lot of riding, so we'll see. Paul didn't even go to Nanaimo, but, like, clearly we'll have media attention in that community showing she was in British Columbia. She was unimpressive when she was here, Jill. She forgot the names of most of the candidates that were around her. She didn't speak specifically about the work that Manley and May had done to any great extent. It was it was really like a stump speech you'd hear at any stop. And, like, when you're getting on a plane and flying five hours... You better bring your A-game and your best stuff about that region to make the people in that area feel special. It didn't feel that way on Saturday. And that was kind of a, an unfortunate theme, I, I thought, for her through the campaign. Because if you go back to the debate as well, the only debate that enemy Paul was in, she also was was mistaken on the area on which pipeline she was talking about, With which I, I get it, it's a BC issue. But you would think it'd be a big enough issue to get that one correct. Yeah, and I think... You know, when you're, you know, you and I have covered enough of these campaigns to know how much work goes on behind the scenes, right? And she has communication staff and campaign organizers. And, you know, five-hour flights are nice to, you know, watch movies and read books. But when you're in the middle of a campaign, you better be doing your homework. And I think one of the things that she, she missed out on is being sharp on the BC issues, the issues that Manly and May have advocated for in Parliament. She mentioned a few of them. But there could have been a greater push there from the leader to try to give them that big boost they need over the finish line. Let's talk quickly as well. You touched on this because we're going to be watching those results come in. I know that you have a very busy night this evening. There's a there's a big global NCKNW election special to get everybody the information as soon as they can. Is there, when we're looking at the difference between a majority and a minority, and I know you yeah. mentioned in Ontario, and of course the 905 in Ontario, it's, that's where there's going to be a lot of focus. Will there also be focus on BC? Yeah, there will be. And the challenge with this, Jill, as you know, is just the time in which the polls close and the time in which the polls are reported. So the Ontario polls this time around are only closed actually 30 minutes before BC's polls. Uh, I think they close here at 7 Pacific. They close at 6.30 Pacific, so 9.30 Eastern. So that will make a bit of a difference because we'll get big swaths of votes coming at the same time. But then when you break down the map, you know, Justin Trudeau had huge success here in 2015. Uh, he won 16 seats. And if you look at the polls here and aggregators, we're looking at the Liberals winning anywhere between, you know, 6 and 11 or 12 tonight. If you look at that worst case scenario, six seats compared to 16, there's very much a chance here that Justin Trudeau is 10 seats, eight seats short of that majority. And ultimately, that could be, you know, not delivering in British Columbia. And I think what's happening here is those progressive voters that are debating between NDP and Liberal are looking at the work John Horgan is doing and equating the provincial NDP with the federal NDP. And Jugmeet 
and his own momentum is picking up a lot of those votes. We'll have to wait and see what happens tonight. These aggregators can be wrong. The polls can be wrong. We could see a really efficient vote from the liberals, and that I mean lower percentage but higher number of seats winning close races. But I, I also see a lot of NDP votes siphoning off, and then the PPC is going to be at play in a few ridings where they'll move some conservative vote away, and that, again, could open up the door for you know an NDP or liberal. That's what makes BC fascinating, Jill. And yes, it's hard to really, in that moment, realize what impact it's having on the big picture, minority-majority, but it should be interesting. We'll have it all, like you mentioned, global news special uh, after the news hour. We're going to the national show, and then... Once that show's over, I'll be a big part of the After the Vote special on uh, NW and BC1 and Global BC as well. So it should be fun. All right. Look forward to it. And if you're not too, too worn out tomorrow, let's have you back on the program tomorrow. Can't wait. Can't wait. We'll do it. <laughs> All Thanks, right. Joe. Thanks, Richard. It is election day with many people going to their local polling station to cast their ballots. So we thought it would be a good idea to answer any questions that you might still have to make sure everybody knows exactly what is happening today. And joining us to do just that is Andrea Morantz, a spokesperson with Elections Canada. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you. Uh, do you know at this point how things have been as far as are we looking at lineups or, or busy polling stations, anything like that? Yeah, it. Um, there so far there have been really no issues. There have been. Um, it has been very busy. There have been a lot of of people coming through the polls, but we haven't had any major issues here, and all the polls opened on time, and and things are going well. That is good to hear. Uh, absolutely. Uh, was there any issue? I know we talked in the past about there weren't as many staff members or employees as there have been in past uh, elections. Is there any issue then, as far as you know, with staffing or, or with people who are who are at those posts? Well, by uh, by this morning, by election day, we had ninety three percent of the staff we were looking for. So uh, it it really came up in the last few days, and and we're doing just fine in terms of staffing. All right. What should people yeah. know if, say, you got your voter card in the mail, but you can't find it today? Hmm. Well, you don't need to have your voter card, but you do need to know where you're going. And this would be the only thing that's even approaching an issue, I think, that we're seeing today, is that some people are just going to any polling place, and you can't do that. You have to go to the polling place that you've been assigned to. That's the only place that you can vote. So if you can't find your your voter information card because that has exactly where you're supposed to go on it, then you can go to elections.ca and put in your postal code, and it will tell you where you should go, where you should go to vote. Um, You can also call the public information line, which is 1-800-463-6868. Those volumes will probably be pretty high today, so have some patience if you have to call that line. Um, but those are, are good ways to find out where you're going. And once you get to the polls, you really don't have to have that voter information card. As long as you have your ID that shows where you belong, where your address is, and uh, at 
ID can be something as simple as a, a driver's license, because that covers all your bases, or two pieces of ID that both have your name, and one of them has your current address. Okay. Uh, just, to, just to clarify, in case people heard that and didn't get a chance to write it down, 1-800-463-6868? That's right. Okay, perfect. Uh, but if, so if you do show up at the wrong polling station, would the staff there be able to help you by taking, looking at your information and be able to tell you where, which station you should be at? It depends I entirely on sort of how far off you are. Okay. <laughs> um, so it, it really is, uh, I would really, really recommend that people, if they're not sure where they need to vote, they have to find out before they even go. Because I can just imagine how frustrated people would be if they waited through a long line and then found out they were in the wrong place. All right, that makes sense for sure. Uh, what about the rules when it comes to, to phones and cameras? I know there sometimes is confusion because we might see political leaders and it looks like video of them casting a ballot, but we're also told you're not supposed to have a camera inside a polling station. What are the rules there? Yeah, you can't, um, you can't take a picture inside a polling place. So we're recommending that people... Take, take a picture outside. There's lots of great Election Canada um, signage around, and you can get a, your picture taken with that. But you cannot take your picture inside the polling place. The one exception, though, is the national leader of a political party. And they, have, they can only bring in one uh, video camera and one still camera. And they take the pictures and share them with the other media. So it's called the media pool that travels with the, uh, the with the leaders. And that can also apply to uh, the candidates that are running against the leaders so that we keep that level playing field. Okay, that would explain because I had a, a couple of people emailing me saying, what, what do you mean? I've seen pictures of the leaders voting. So that makes sense if that's that's the exception to that rule. That is. And it has to be the leader. It isn't just any candidate. It's, it has to be the leader of the party. And they apply for this special uh, consideration weeks ahead. All right. Uh, somebody was asking me on the weekend, they were unclear on with more people doing mail-in ballots and perhaps going to the advance polls on what votes actually get counted on Election Day. So which votes will actually be counted today? Um, all the advance votes will be counted today and all of the votes that come in today. So what happens is after um, 7 o'clock, after the polls close, the door is locked and the counting starts right away in each of those polling locations. And back at the returning office, they're counting the advance poll ballots. So that counting all happens tonight. What happens tomorrow is that those mail-in ballots are going to be verified. We have to, we have to make sure that the oath has been signed on the front of them, that they have to, that they, um, the information matches the information on the application, that they haven't gone down and voted today, even though they've also sent in a, <laughs> a mail-in ballot. So all those things have to be checked before we even open them and start counting. All right. So the oh. mail-in ballots will take a little longer. I guess. Do, do you have an idea when we may have the mail-in ballot numbers? Well, depending on how um, 
how many come into a particular returning office. There will be some that will be finished counting uh, tomorrow, but some may take another day or so. Okay, but we're not looking at something like two weeks down the road. No, no, no. All right. Uh, Somebody asked me this question last week, and I'm hoping I gave them the right information. It was a listener who was concerned that she had sent away for a mail-in ballot, but it hadn't arrived yet. So she wanted to know if she could just go vote in person instead. And I said, yes, as long as you then destroy the mail-in ballot when it arrives. Is that right? Well, not quite. Um, (laughs) What you have to do, you can definitely go down and vote in person, but you have to sign an oath that you didn't receive that mail-in ballot. It's it's a form. They will have them at the um, at the polling places. So you can go and and sign the oath that you have not voted by mail, and those will get. Uh, we will just have a record of that so that we can can um, compare them to the vote by mail that we actually do receive. So if you didn't get your mail-in ballot and you haven't voted you can still vote in person provided you sign this oath. All right. And would would somebody in that scenario would have also been mailed a voter card so they'll still know which polling station to go to? Yes, yes, they should have been mailed a a voter information card. All right. Uh, You mentioned the time, the uh, vote, uh, the polling stations in BC opened at 7 a.m. this morning. They're open until 7 p.m. this evening. So what happens if somebody shows up at a station at 6.55 and there's a big lineup? They're still in the lineup. If you're in the lineup by uh, 7 o'clock, you can vote. So what happens is one of the uh, poll workers will be sent out at the close of poll at 7 o'clock and will mark the end of the line. And everyone who's in line at that point can vote, but people that come later cannot. Okay, so but as long as you're in that line, you don't have to be in the station, you just have to be in that line. That's right. That's right. And and finally, uh, Andrew, I wanted to ask you as well, for people that might have concerns about the pandemic and safety mm-hmm. concerns, uh, and again, my experience this morning, everything was great. People were distanced. You got your own pencil if you wanted it. What steps are being taken then to make sure that those protocols are in place and that, that health and safety are being considered? Yeah, that that's something we took very, very seriously and consulted with various health agencies across the country in developing our protocols. So, yes, there's a social distancing. There's marks on the floor where you can stand. There is um, hand sanitizer at the entrance and the exit of the polls. There are physical barriers, plexiglass barriers between the electors and the poll worker where you go to get your ballot. And um, then, as you mentioned, that sort of single-use pencil, if you want to use it, you can uh, take it with you or you can throw it away. All right. Anything else that we didn't cover that you want to make sure people know if they're heading out to the polling stations and they're still going out to cast their ballot today? I think just to, uh, again, restate that, that you please make sure you know where your polling place is before you go out. And remember to take a little patience along with you. Is that happening a lot? You mentioned that that is really the only kind of glitch you're seeing. Are you, are you seeing a lot of people going to the wrong stations? In certain areas, we are. And um, we're seeing a, a number of them. And, and uh, it does slow things down for everybody else. And I'm sure it's upsetting for the person that has been waiting in line. So just strongly recommend make sure you know where you're supposed to be going. 
All right. Did you know which areas are seeing that? Um, there, it's it's tends to be right in the city. I've heard several um, several of the electoral districts in Vancouver. All right. Andrea, thank you so much. I know it's a busy day for you as well, but thank you so much for making the time for us. Thank you. We have been talking a lot about so-called bubble zones, areas that can protect buildings and keep protests from stopping people from accessing services, from accessing people who need to get to that building. Talking about this, of course, because of the large protests that we've seen in front of hospitals, in front of schools. Earlier today, Wally Opal, who is a former judge, former politician, current lawyer, talked on the Simi Sarah show about what government would need to do to make this happen? I think some of this could be done uh, by order and council. These are safety issues. And I think, uh, I don't think you need to call the, uh, if it's an act, then you would have to call the legislature. But, but I don't think they would have too much difficulty doing that. You could do that virtually. And uh, because people are getting upset at what's happening. Healthcare workers are having difficulty doing what they're supposed to do. The public is suffering I think enough is enough and the government would clearly be within its jurisdiction and its rights to do what needs to be done. Let's bring in Kate Feeney, a, the Director of Litigation with West Coast Leaf, to talk a bit more about this. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I know West Coast Leaf was also very much involved when this issue was being discussed, talking about bubble zones around areas, around clinics that provided abortions. What are your thoughts on the need for having these types of zones now, given these protests? Well, while the contexts are a little bit different because of the nature and history of anti-abortion protests and terrorism, Um, which they've had a profound and devastating impact on women and others who may become pregnant, I still see some clear parallels between anti-choice protests and anti-vaccination protests because they're both seeking to disrupt access to health care and other essential services. So I would see those bubble zones um, around hospitals and schools um, with respect to anti-vaccination protests as justifiable because they're, they're balancing um, freedom of expression with the, the rights of people who are just trying to get medical care or get into their classrooms. Does it make a difference that we've seen now this past weekend, we saw some protesters actually enter onto a school or that when we saw protests around hospitals that perhaps slowed ambulances or impeded people getting in? Does it make a difference not only that that protests are happening there, but but exactly how invasive they are? I would say that uh, just by virtue of taking place um, in those areas around um, hospitals or schools, the protests are disrupting access to essential services. But uh, when those greater intrusions happen, certainly um, they make the situation more acute. And my understanding is that the bubble zone legislation um, for abortion clinics came about in 1995 after a Vancouver doctor who um, provided abortions was shot and severely injured at home while eating breakfast. Um, So we wouldn't, we shouldn't have to get to that point in order to um, see the, the risks that are being created.
And, and, and Wally Opal, we, we ran that clip of him talking about how government could do it if it was either legislation or if it was an order in council. What are your thoughts on time-wise? Would it, would it be a particularly simple thing to bring this in? Um, I don't think that I can speak to that question, but I do feel like um, whatever path government takes, um, the result uh, would be lawful because because of that precedent um, that has been set with bubble zones around abortion clinics and the recognition that when you've got vulnerable groups who are essentially captive audiences to um, these protesters because by virtue of the fact that they're trying to access essential services, um, like there's no freedom of expression doesn't entitle a group to a captive audience and they can choose other locations to deliver their message um, that are less sensitive and less disruptive. Right. And, and I w- I'm on, I agree with you completely. And, and seeing especially the one protest and seeing the ambulance trying to get through, hearing from people who were patients at VGH who couldn't get in or had to really fight their way to get in, whether it was to take a patient in or to go visit somebody. I mean, it is it does seem completely wrong that somebody would be put in that scenario. Uh, but what about something like on the weekend, on Saturday in downtown Vancouver, there were thousands of protesters. That were that were in in kind of the same position. They were protesting the vaccine uh, man passports. They were protesting vaccines, protesting masks. Uh, they basically shut down traffic as they marched through parts of the city. W- would the same argument be made that there were people trying to get to, to where they were going that day or, or during that protest who were stopped? Um, I think that would be a harder argument to make. Um, you know. Freedom of expression and protests have often taken place in that downtown area, and we've seen um, a range of issues and messages um, being discussed. Um, But, you know, when it comes to bubble zones, at least, uh, there's a a particular framework that applies, and, and I think that it's, it's about the, these really sensitive locations where the protests are taking place and, and where the protests have the effect of, um, you know, are effectively blocking access to, to these services. Um, and, you know, I think, too, when we look at the COVID-19 pandemic, there's an extra layer of, of um, risk involved because the healthcare and education systems are already working really hard to preserve access under tremendous pressure. And these anti-vaccination protests are are just making it that much more difficult to in, ensure um, equal access to to these critical components of of our our day to day life. Right. Do you know how it works? And if you don't, that's that's absolutely fine. But I'm curious, would it be if, if bubble zones were brought in around these specific places, namely hospitals and schools, would it be bubble zones for all? Or could you only have them in places where they've been the subject of protest? Um, well, I think with respect to abortion clinics, let's say, I mean, they were whether or not any particular abortion clinic was dealing with um, heightened protest activity, the legislation applied to all abortion clinics and and because they were considered at risk of um, 
of, of these types of disruptions. So I, I, I would think that um, a similar argument could be made about hospitals, at least um, during this particular period of time when anti-vaccination protests are, are very active, that uh, um, any hospital could be considered at risk of those types of protests. Right. And, and when you look back, and again, I know West Coast Leaf was very involved in that process leading to the bubble zones being granted around those clinics. Uh, was it a difficult fight or do you think because we've had that fight or had that discussion, does it make it a, a bit easier to have it now? Um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. I'm just curious, because we, we've gone through this, and I know West Coast Leaf w- was very involved when we were talking about bubble zones around those clinics, clinics that provided abortions. Does that give us a bit of a framework as far as having the conversation now when it comes to hospitals and schools, or do we have to go back to square one? No, I think I think the framework is in place. Like I said, the context is a little bit different, and this is possibly a more novel situation, but the underlying issues, you can see a lot of parallels because you've got protesters who are have vulnerable populations as a captive audience. And, you know, the effect of the protest is blocking um, access to essential services. So, you know, with respect to hospitals, we're talking about people in need of medical care who may not be well, and they're entitled to privacy around their health. So they have of those... Um, vulnerabilities. And with respect to schools, we're talking about children, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. So, um, you know, these people deserve access to, they've got their rights to healthcare and to education, and um, those rights need to be balanced um, against freedom of expression. And, you know, our our charter recognizes that there are justifiable limits on freedom of of expression, Um, especially when it comes into conflict with other rights. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. It makes a lot of sense. Kate, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Thank you for having me. All right, let's talk about an announcement that was made earlier today. Not a huge surprise. The United States has extended the restrictions at the land borders for at least another month. But there is also a change when it comes to air travel. Let's bring in Len Saunders, Blaine immigration lawyer. Len, great to have you back on the program. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. All right. So so I guess not a huge surprise, or are you surprised at all that the extension of the land border restrictions goes now until at least October? Well, I definitely wasn't uh, surprised by that. The Americans have had no plan. They've basically been, you know, radio silence over the last month, which makes you think the border is going to close the land border for another 30 days. And that's what happened today. So that was no surprise. And when it comes to air travel, we're now hearing that people will have to show proof of vaccination then when coming into the United States. What have you heard about this? Well, so when I first heard this morning about this new air travel opening, I was fairly encouraged. But it's like the old saying, the devil's in the detail. So when I look into it, it only applies to people flying from the UK and Europe. So it has nothing to do with Canadians entering. Now, what I think is going to happen, so now they've, the Americans have opened up or they will open up in the next month or so, uh, air travel to fully vaccinated Europeans and U.K. citizens. 
my concern is right now there's no restrictions on Canadians flying in. So what the Americans may do is, you know, put further restrictions on Canadians on flying. So it actually may be a step backwards for Canadians who want to enter the U.S. who have not been fully vaccinated. Right, because as it is right now, if you're a Canadian flying to the United States, isn't it just that you have to provide a negative COVID test within that 72-hour window? Absolutely. Most people get it at Vancouver Airport. They get it back in 20 minutes and they're on their way. But, you know, now that they're making this requirement, so the Americans are making it sound like it's opening up air travel. Well, most Europeans can still come to the U.S. They just have to go to a third country like Mexico and do a 14-day quarantine or even Canada. So there's all of these opportunities. So it sounds like it's a huge kind of you know, opening of the border. But when you really look at it, it really doesn't help a lot of people, especially not fellow Canadians. There's also been some concern raised about if this does, if this new rule applies to Canadians, Canadians who got one or two doses of AstraZeneca, that is a vaccine that's not been recognized in the United States. Uh, It seems if this is a rule, though, that's focused, that's that we know it's coming in and it's going to be a rule for people from the UK. I mean, most, if not all of the UK was vaccinated with AstraZeneca. So do you think that they will change that or they will at least make it? Well, well, they're not going to use it in the United States. States, they'll at least recognize it as a vaccination? Well, once again, what's interesting, the devil's in the details. So I read all the stories this morning, and the CDC has still not announced what vaccinations are going to be acceptable. So who knows whether this is going to help or hurt Canadians? It's just, you know, they keep changing, you know, what the requirements are. And, you know, all the Canadians are patiently waiting to drive back to the U.S. And, you know, A few people are flying. So who knows what the CDC is going to say and whether that will actually help or hurt Canadians if they finally open up the land border and if they require vaccinations to drive. Who knows? Hmm. Do you you find it strange that they came out with this today saying they are going to change the policy? So come November, there are going to be this the requirements that people arriving by air will have to be vaccinated, but they haven't yet put out that list on which vaccinations they're going to recognize. Well, I think it's sloppy. I think it's sloppy that they're making this announcement, but there's really no detail. Right. It's very vague. When, when I first heard it, I thought, oh, great, finally the Americans are being more proactive like the Canadians. They're making exemptions for other nationalities to come in. But when you look at it, it's really not a big exemption, and there's no details. So who knows in the next month or two what those details are going to be and whether it's going to help you know, either Europeans or Canadians enter this country. Uh, do you have any sense as well on the land border? Again, we know that it's been extended to October 21st. Any idea if we're seeing changes with air travel, do we expect that there might be changes as well? If they're going to allow people to come by air who are fully vaccinated, then why not open it up and allow people the same thing by land? Absolutely. I think at this point, the only thing I can you know guess is that because of what's going on on the southern border, and, you know, the disaster of, you know, tens of thousands of people coming across every day, maybe they're going to open up the southern border at the same time as the northern border. So the Canadian border has been lumped into what's going on down south. That's the only reason I can see. There's no reason not to have Canadians come into Whatcom County now, fully vaccinated, proof of your vaccinations. Americans are going north now. 
So why can't Canadians do the same thing and come into Canada? So that's my only guess, is that there's some link to the southern border. Does there have to be, though? Is there anything saying that they, the, whatever border decision they make, it has to be both the northern and the southern border at the same time? Absolutely not. You know, when you have the northern border with no fence on it, there's never been a fence on the northern border for 200 years, and you have barbed wire and, you know, 30-foot fences, there's no reason to consider the two borders similar. Hmm, it's interesting. I, I saw a bit of a cartoon. It was a tongue-in-cheek cartoon put out by Brian Calder in Point Roberts in a small plane that he was making a point that he was now going to start flying back and forth to show that, that they could do that. I would imagine that this announcement today, though, doesn't really do anything to help with the concerns and what's happening with Point Roberts. Oh, absolutely. So at first I thought, well, Brian Calder is going to be very happy, gets to start off Monday with some good news. I think it's the exact opposite. He's going to be furious knowing that there's really no change in the land border policy. And, and what's happening in, in your neck of the woods, in Blaine and in Bellingham? I know we've talked about this in the past, about the lack of Canadians driving over and people in those communities. We're just patiently waiting, patiently waiting for the border to reopen, the gas stations, the mailbox places. I know a lot of them would love the business for Christmas, but I have a lot of people now saying to me they're not expecting the border to open until early next year. So I think there's kind of a, you know, a lot of people have just given up on any hope. It'll open when it, when it opens. And here we are now. We're exactly a year and a half from the first closure. So it's been a year and a half, and I can guarantee you, Nobody a year and a half ago thought we'd be sitting here today with no end in sight. No, I think everybody would agree with with that for sure. Uh, what's happening in Washington with the vaccination rates? As far as I know, you, you were vaccinated months and months ago, as, as were a lot of people there. But I know at one point, too, it kind of seemed like things were leveling off a bit. Oh, absolutely. So I think it's peaked uh, the people who are being vaccinated um, you know, I, I'm assuming a lot of people like myself are probably going to get the second booster shot after 10 months. So my 10 months is, is next month in October. Um, you know, we still have restrictions on masks indoors and, and other sorts of restrictions, not as much as up in Canada right now. Um, and our state, I've, I've actually been traveling around the U.S. a lot in the last month. And Washington State is one of the more restrictive ones. But you go to some of the southern states and there's no masks at all like they're back to normal but the numbers are still high so i think there's a lot of concern that the virus is still out there and who knows when it's going to finally get under control what's it like then being in one of the the more southern states or when you get to a place like that where it's like it's back to normal but at the same time you know that the numbers are still there well i was in tucson a couple weeks ago and there's no masks unless you go into a federal building or you're on a flight you know, you can walk into stores and restaurants and there's zero masks. My daughter goes to law school in West Texas and one of her friends says she hasn't worn a mask for a year. So there's a lot of contrast in this country. I know Canada is fairly similar, you know, east to west coast on wearing masks. But this this country is all over the place on, you know, states like Washington State, which obviously, you know, are more concerned and uh, and there's more restrictions. And I wear one. I they ask me to wear one, I'll pull one on. That's what they've asked for, and I, I comply. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting, or just 
fascinating almost to look at the the difference and the, all the difference even within one country. Uh, Len, do you hope or do you think that we will get clarification from what we're hearing about this new policy as far as having to be vaccinated to fly to the United States? Uh, we're hearing that it's going to start in early to mid-November. Uh, are you hopeful or do you think we will get more clarification on this? Oh, they've, they've got to because here now they're saying you know, now you can fly in from Europe if you're fully vaccinated. I think they're going to now start requiring it from Canada. They can't require it from the UK and Europe and not require it from Canada. So, you know, they've, they've, they've put the seed out there that things are going to change and there's going to be more of an opening. And obviously over the next month or two, you're going to see more details rolling out before the actual policy takes effect. Right, because even with somebody trying to do a workaround, if you were trying to get around it coming into, say, coming to Canada first, like you mentioned, and then going to the States, you'd have to show you're fully vaccinated uh, to come for, for recreational travel coming into Canada to be able to do that without having to quarantine. Well, and that's why I think most people are going to have to get vaccinated if they're going to have to travel. That was one of the main reasons I got vaccinated back in January was I knew as an attorney representing my clients all over the country, I'd have to get vaccinated. And I think a lot of people are going to have to realize that, that in order to actually get back to normal and travel and, and see family and, and for work, they're going to have to get vaccinated. And I think a lot of these loopholes are going to finally start closing just to get more consistency, whether it's flying from Canada or Europe or driving. I didn't think that the Americans were going to require full vaccinations on coming into this country, but obviously they've seen what Canada's done and maybe they're using that as an example of what to do. Uh, right. You, you never know. I, are there any places that you know of in the States that have gone the route of the vaccine passport or the vaccine card like we now have in BC? So I, I carry mine in behind my phone. So I put it, tuck it in behind my phone cover. I've never been asked to see it, but Going to a lot of games, I believe a lot of, well, I was down in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago and the new stadium, football stadium down there, they're requiring uh, passport uh, vaccination cards. So they're starting to slowly wrap, you know, kind of uh, ramp it up, mostly at the big venues, the, the football games and I think baseball games. So I think you're going to see more of that being, you know, required in the U.S., similar to what's happened up in Canada. All right. We will wait and see and hopefully get more details on what was announced today. Len, so great to chat with you. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. You too. That is Len Saunders, Blaine immigration lawyer, talking about the new rules. But again, I think a lot of people waiting and hoping for clarification on what that might mean for Canadians flying to the States if they too will have to show proof of vaccination and clarification on exactly which vaccines will be recognized in the United States. We are going to shift gears right now and talk about something we do love to talk about on the South Coast, and that is orcas, specifically the resident orcas and so many people concerned about their future. Well, is there hope to be had now that we're learning about some pregnancies in the J-Pod? Well, joining us to talk more about that is Josh McInnes, UBC's with the UBC Institute for Oceans and Fisheries. Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So this must be a pretty exciting discovery to find out that three members of the Southern Resident, the J-Pod, are pregnant. Yeah, this is actually really exciting for all of us. I mean, we're learning so much from the new technology that's being developed by 
by researchers using drones or UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles, because it's really showing a lot of information about pregnancies and overall health, body health conditions of these whales. And by using drones, is that kind of a, a non-invasive way of studying these whales? Yeah, so historically, and what is still being used is mostly uh, vessel-based or boat-based uh, research where we view the animals while being um, on the water. But the drone actually gives us a bit of a different angle. It's it's less invasive. You can soar above like an airplane high up and you can take photos and you really get a different angle. So you can see the animals from above, which shows differences in their body. You can see below the surface a bit um, as well. So you can kind of see what they're hunting, what they're going for. You can measure their body. So it's really interesting new technology that's really showing us a whole new world to kill Hmm. So how rare is it to have three pregnancies in the J-pod at one time? Well, that's a good question. And I, you know, for us, for us scientists, we, we look at killer whale births as being, you know, one of these events that happens from time to time. But um, the drone uh, technology is really showing us something that may be going unnoticed by scientists. Um, and that's that these killer whales are being pregnant. And it could be, there could be pregnancies that we don't even know about. Uh, for instance, killer whales are well known to have stillbirths or have pregnancies that fail, similar to other species too. And that could go unnoticed, especially if you're only watching from the side of a boat. So, But it is pretty exciting. And for us scientists, I mean, we've had a couple of baby booms over the years, but this is particularly um, hopeful for these endangered whales. And do we know enough about these whales then, if we are in fact dealing with what we see now, these three pregnancies, is this one particularly amorous whale in the pod that has fathered the three calves or do whales pair up? So with, with resident killer whales, or with all killer whales, they, they breed outside their their natal pod. So for instance, J-pod will mix with another southern resident pod like K-pod or L-pod and vice versa. And it's not uh, monogamous, so there's no relationship between one male and one female. There seems to be mating between females and other males. Uh, but there has been research that's shown that um, older males do seem to do most of the breeding um, with, with pod with females. So uh, in this instance, we're just not even sure who the, the fathers are because the calves actually stay with the mothers their entire life and they become part of that, that pod structure that's so strong. Right. Okay, so these, so if, if all goes well and these calves survive and, and flourish, they will become part of J-Pod. That's correct. And what's really exciting, too, is that um, it's hopeful that one of these calves will be female because females really are the, the, the breeding units that provide um, the hope for this population to grow, especially because they're currently endangered in, in numbering only 74 whales. Right. Okay. And is there any concern then if it is, even if, the, well, if we know the fathers are from different pods, is there any concern with inbreeding that if, if perhaps it is just one male from another pod, the fact that these, these I guess they would be half siblings if they all survive? Yeah, there is definitely concern as a population starts to decline over time and it becomes less and less, we're going to start seeing the potential for inbreeding. And that's just the ability for a species trying to survive. They're trying to mate, they're trying to breed. And when you have less and less numbers, then you're starting to be limited in who you can actually mate with. And there is that concern that as the population declines, if it continues to decline, we're going to start seeing more and more inbreeding, and which inbreeding does lead to specific diseases. Right. Which is that why we are where do we know why we're at the number 74 now down from more than 90 a few decades ago? Yeah, so that's a great question. So a lot of people um, 
suggest that the, there's, the major factor is prey reduction, and southern residents specialize in salmon, which are another iconic species on the BC coast. But often with a species, there's more than one environmental factor that's actually causing a problem. There's also um, other factors, there's usually a multitude of factors. So, for instance, vessel noise, vessel traffic, uh, pollution, things like PCBs, DDTs, and heavy metals, especially in top predators like killer whales that rely and accumulate these toxins in their bodies. And then on the other hand, you do have the lack of food, which is a big one, uh, where you have a species like Chinook salmon, which is their main prey, that is also critically endangered in British Columbia. So you have multiple things acting at once that are that are causing this population to be overstressed. And most species can deal with one stress, but once you have multiple, that makes the population more susceptible. And do we know why this species, which we, we know are, are smart, uh, these animals, and like you said, their preferred uh, diet is salmon, but you would think if you're on the brink of starving to death, you might try the seal. Why don't they kind of diversify their menu? That's a great question, actually. I, am, I specialize myself in transient killer whales, which are the other form that do predate seals. Um, killer whales are very cultural. So by culture, um, I mean that they've adapted behavior specifically for hunting specific prey for, for decades, centuries, um, that they've, they've adapted this way of hunting. And energetically, it takes a lot to learn how to hunt something else. For instance, their culture, how they hunt salmon, would be very different from how they hunt a seal. So by socializing with other killer whales that hunt similarly to you, then your ability to be successful in getting prey is a lot more you have a, a better chance. Where and there's also the other fact that um, these killer whales don't may not prey on other animals like seals or or, or or say the transients feeding on fish because it could be pathogens or things that they haven't been able to adapt their immune systems to handling. So from things that they started to say hunt a seal that could potentially be dangerous to them. All right. Uh, getting back to the the pregnancies that were discovered by drones, can we tell how far along they are? Do we know when we might see the baby orcas? Yeah, so that's really interesting. There's, I mean, we're starting to be able to follow with these drones being able to photograph and look at the different stages of health in killer whales. And yeah, they're saying that the, these killer whales are quite far along, these females, uh, in their birth, ready to have birth. So pretty much any time. And killer whales do often have a lot of calves during the winter time. And that is a critical time, especially because for resident killer whales, which rely on salmon, the salmon start to leave the inland coastal waters here to the open ocean. And the killer whales go through a bit of a, a stressful time during the winter for trying to find food. So it is a difficult time, but these killer whales are likely probably be close to having their calves. All right. And do we know if we're talking about the same female orca, that kind of heartbreaking footage that we saw of the orca that then died and, and the orca? that carried the calf for I think it was 17 days is this is one of these pregnant whales do we know if it's the same one no these are three different individuals uh, J35 was the individual that had the, the calf that died uh, and stillborns are are fairly common in killer in, in cetaceans uh, and killers we don't know to what extent but it does happen um, and it's it's one of those things that this drone technology can really help with figuring out as what percentage of that does happen because these pregnancies, we may never know if there was a stillborn or even if an, a female was pregnant by just watching from the side of a boat. So, no, these, these, these are three different animals. Okay. And, and sorry, just one more question. You said this, yeah. so this could happen at any point. Where are they right now? Or, or do we know kind of, well, do we have an idea then when they, where they might be when this happens? 
So we, we don't know. I mean, th- these killer whales cover vast distances along our coast, up to 100 kilometers in a day. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a dramatic change in their behavior. They're spending more time away from the Salish Sea, which is the, the coastal waters around British Columbia and Washington. They're spending more time out onto the fishing banks, areas like La Perouse Bank and Swiftshire Bank, uh, as well as off the outer coast of Oregon. So we don't know. And as we begin to winter, we start to see them heading further offshore. They're going down off of these fishing banks. But they also start to come into, in the fall, they start to show up in Puget Sound, uh, where they'll be hunting another species of salmon called chum. They seem to follow a chum run into Puget Sound. So other than that, though, we, we just don't know um, where they're going to be. All right. Well, we look forward to getting updates on this very exciting story. I know a lot of people will be paying attention. Josh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.